Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Well, the title of my message today is Biggest Loser Wins. Biggest Loser Wins. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a loser. This is weird, Tyler. You want to be a loser. Trust me. Okay, you're like, I don't like service so far. Relax. Relax. Matthew 16, 24, 28. Let's go to the, the scripture. Here we go. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. You will lose her. Come on now. It's a good thing to lose some things. Lose some shame. Lose a worldly identity. Lose burden that you should have never had. I mean, you need to lose some things. Some, we, the, the kingdom uh, of God, we call this theologically the upside-down kingdom. That losing is winning. That dying is living. That surrender equals freedom. It's an amazing thing, this upside-down kingdom. The way to up is actually down. The least of these would be the greatest. If you want to sit at the head of the table, start at the end of the table. These are all things that are the opposite of what the world would tell you. The world would tell you, look at me, I'm amazing. But the kingdom would tell you, man, if you want to save your life, you better become the biggest loser in the world. And now, I'm not going to lie, I'm the most competitive person ever. It makes me cringy to even say the word loser. <laughs> show me somebody who's good at losing, and I'll show you a good loser, okay? Like, you ever play with somebody who's just great at losing a game? Oh, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Do you have a heart in your chest? It's a huge deal. I don't want to lose at anything. Checkers, walking to a door, you name it. But the reality is, is that when it comes to the kingdom of God, you got to lose some things. And when you lose those things, you actually win. I love how it finishes. What good will it be for uh, someone to gain the whole world? You won the world. Yet you force, they forfeit their soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Let's pray. God, today we come against the lukewarm Christianity. God, this is a passionate house. We want to see your kingdom come, your will be done. God, this nation needs to see you move. Oh, it's just so broken in so many ways. And God, we cannot fix it, but you can. God, uh, we just ask that your beautiful Holy Spirit would give us wisdom, would give us the grace to know how to minister to a broken world. Oh, God, we need you. We need you. Come on, everybody say, we need you real quick. Need Come on, Mission Church cries out right now. God, say, we need you. May my words fall to the floor, and may your words soar. And everybody said? Amen. Today, we're in the book of Esther. We're in the book of Esther. And uh, this next month will be, as we're going through the whole book of uh, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, will be in Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. What's interesting about what book we're in today is Esther is found in the palace. She is a queen uh, in this book, you'll find out. Uh, Ezra is a minister, uh, and then Nehemiah is a cupbearer and becomes a civil uh, city engineer, city planning manager. And what you'll see in all three books is that God's people are heading for destruction. The trajectory of God's people and the kingdom of God is this way. And the way that God turns the trajectory is in one story, we'll talk about Esther, he uses a queen that will is willing to, if I could say it this way, become the biggest loser and lose it all to turn the ship so God's people can actually come back and have a great comeback. And then in the book of Ezra, you'll see that God's people are on a terrible trajectory. And Ezra, being a minister and a preacher, God's people have lost the word of God. They need to get reacquainted with the word of God. So Ezra is used to show them the goodness of God through the scriptures. 
And then Nehemiah, oh, God's people are in destruction. The wall is broken. He's a cupbearer. And God uses Nehemiah to go be a city engineer, a builder of a wall, and literally has him build a wall to restore God's people. This whole big thought of that is simply this. God uses people to change the world. God uses willing people, ministers, city planners, queens, come on now, high class, low class, uh, middle class, all the classes, He'll use people that are saying, God, use me to actually change the trajectory of where the kingdom of God is going. And just maybe, just maybe, you're alive for such a time as this. Maybe, just maybe, God would awaken you, whatever role you're in, because you don't only need people sitting in a congregation, you need people in the business world, you need people in the school world, you need people all over to change the world. And so that's where it takes place. That's the first uh, thing we got to um understand. Second thing is this, is I'll show you how the book's broken down. We're not going to go through the whole book today. I wish we could. We're going to go through seven of the 10 chapters, but here's how Esther breaks down. The first two chapters, you call it supernatural providence. The name of God is not mentioned once in all 10 chapters. It's the only book in the Bible where you will see not God named one time, but I love what Matthew Henry says, one of my favorite theologians and commentary. He says this, God's name isn't in it, but his hand is all over it. So sometimes when you can't see the trace of God everywhere, you got to start trusting God is everywhere. And so the, the book of Esther, you'll see that God's hand is on everything to restore God's people and to protect God's people. So providence is everywhere. Uh, second thing you'll see uh, in this is Esther 3 through 5, you'll see satanic planning and plotting. You need to know something. Uh, Ephesians 6 shows us very plainly that in our culture and all cultures that there will be principalities Basically, the king of darkness will always have a plan and a ploy on how to destroy and literally defeat the church. And not only that, demolish and destroy people. So there's always satanic planning going on. And if Esther finished at chapter 5, it would be really sad, but here's what happens 6 or 10. God's protection. God is always, always working. He's always working for the good of those who love him. Oh, I, I, just, I pray that you see that. So where does this story take place? This story takes place in Persia. Now, Persia is the most powerful empire at this moment. You could relate to it. It'd be like America. It's the, it's the richest nation, the most powerful nation. And not only does it uh, take in Persia, but it takes place at the palace. Now, let me just uh, unpack this for you, where it takes place. So there's Persia, millions, 50 plus million, most powerful, just massive nation, you know, ruling the most of the known world. And then you have, inside Persia, you have the capital, basically the best place to live. It's called Susa. And then inside of Susa, there is the palace. And the palace is another, you know, thousands of people that live in the palace, and that's where everybody wants to live. So you got Persia, where people live. Then you got Susa, really, really nice. And then you got the palace, really, really, ooh, the palace is amazing. You want to live in the palace. Let's just uh, see, can we relate to this story? So we have the world, and still, it's crazy to believe, but it's, it's believable. Everywhere, if you could tell somebody where they want to come live, the number one place, if you did a poll, would be America, Susa. And then inside America, if you could poll people, where would you want to live? It would be California, okay? Even though people are moving out, still California is amazing, okay? It's the first time I ever moved out, but I won't talk about that right now. And inside of California, we call that Sousa. Guess what's inside of California? This place called the Bay Area. You live in the palace. Hey, you may not believe it, but you got to understand something real quick. Seven billion people, 320 million people live in America. Ten million people live in the Bay Area. Out of all the places in all the world, God placed you in the palace, and what I mean by the palace is the palace in Persian time shaped everything else in the world. It shaped everything. 
It shaped politics. It shaped the way people thought. It shaped what people wore. And if I'm being honest, the Bay Area shapes everything. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm around pastors, we'll talk about where we're from. So I'll go to a pastor gathering, 40 pastors around the U.S. And like, hey, where are you pastor? I pastor in Norfolk, Indiana. And people are like, oh, that's awesome. Next person, where are you pastor? Oh, I pastor in Spokane, Washington. Oh, that's nice. That's a great spot. Oh, where do you pastor? da 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 And I'll, oh, I pastor in the Bay Area. Oh, the Bay Area. I love the Bay Area. Oh. <laughs> Oh, have you been to Napa? Yeah, but live about 35 minutes. You live 35 minutes from Napa? Oh, I love the Bay Area. Have you ever been to Half Moon Bay? Oh, I golf there like once a month. You golf there once a month at Half Moon Bay? Oh, what about, you don't go to Carmel or Monterey, do you? Oh, actually, I do. Have you ever golfed Pebble Beach? Yeah, like five or 10 times. I don't know. Too many times to count now. They're like, oh, I just love that area. I live in the palace. You don't tell somebody, where are you, where are you pastor? Norfolk, Indiana. Cool. Next question. <laughs> How is it there? The reality is, is that when I tell people that I pass in the Bay Area, it does something to them. They want to know what's going on. They're like, oh, you're by Google and Facebook and Netflix? I mean, what's it like? Do you ever see Zuckerberg? I'm like, no. Oh, I'm in the East Bay. He lives in the South Bay. He's in Silicon Valley area, you know? And they'll just ask me questions about the Bay Area. Oh, what's it like, you know? And I'll, I'll tell them, like, man, there's a lot of strengths. There's a lot of strengths. But, man, and then they realize, like, I heard there's, like, and this is the other thing they always ask me. I hear it's, like, crazy up there. Like, they just give drugs to anybody, like at stations. I'm like, that's kind of true. It's kind of true. But not exactly true. And so, when you look at this story of Esther, it would be like somebody in Persia, and if they met Esther, where do you live? Oh, I live in the palace. Oh, the palace. What's the palace like, Esther? What's it like to be at the king's banquets and, and to live in that kind of world? I, I'd never experienced anything like that. And so, when you read this story, you need to know something, Mission Church. You live in the palace of the world. And some of you don't know that. You just think you live in a certain area. No, God has placed you on purpose in the palace. If we shape the Bay Area, we could shape the world. If we actually had a revival in the Bay Area, it would affect the whole world. The world would know. They would see it through different platforms and different people. They would start saying what happened in the Bay Area. And the reality is that the palace had a revival. So that's where it takes place. Let's keep going. Next thing is, is uh, what's the problem? God's people are heading to destruction because of an evil plan by Haman. Haman, you'll find out there's four big characters in the story, Xerxes, Haman, Esther, and Mordecai. Haman is being used by Satan, basically, if I could put it that way. Uh, God will use people to either restore you or God will use people to try to destroy you. That's just the reality. It's, God is a creator and Satan's a counterfeiter. And so Satan will try to use the same kind of things just, just with a perverted way. And so Haman is a wounded man, an angry man, a prideful man, and his plan is literally being birthed in this story to literally kill every single person of God. Not one, mother, child, father, baby. He wants them all dead on a certain day. So that's the problem. That's one of the problems. Here's the second problem. The person God wants to use lives in the palace, and that's a problem. Because if you live in the palace and God wants to use you, guess what you can lose? The palace. And when you live in the palace, there is comfort, there is notoriety, there is a schedule, there is a life to be lived. And when God comes to somebody in the palace and says, I want to use you, the response in the palace is, it's not really convenient to use me. I got a lot to lose. Can't you use somebody in Norfolk, Indiana? They got nothing to lose. Ooh, shots. I don't even know where Norfolk I don't even know it's a real place. Is it real? I don't know. I didn't even check. I just sounded like a real city. Sounded like a place to be in Indiana. I have no idea. Be like, can't you just try to use somebody else in Persia? Not me in the palace. I got a lot to lose, God. 
I, I, got, I, got, I, got, I, got, I got a career. I got all this stuff. Oh, don't choose me. So the problem is the person that God wants to use is in the palace. But the other problem is, is the person that enemy is using is also in the palace trying to destroy everything. So what I want to do here is look at what's the solution. What's the solution? And the solution is this. God is looking for someone willing to lose it all so they can gain it all. Wow. That's the solution. Let me read you another thing, the solution. Maybe, just maybe, God put Esther in the palace, not so she would use the palace, but she would serve the palace. Maybe, just maybe, God put you in the Bay Area, not to use the Bay Area, but to serve the Bay Area. Maybe, just maybe, you're not here on accident. Maybe, just maybe, if you were willing to lose it all, you would gain it all. You know, David gets a lot of pub uh, for the right reasons. One of the most famous stories in all the Bible is David slaying Goliath. Ooh, it's a great story. It's a great story. He grabs the stones, you know, kills Goliath. It's not really a kid's story, but we tell him kids' stories. He cuts his head off, lifts it up. It's amazing. Um, Hollywood is struggling for movies right now. And I'm like, just go in the Bible. Make a David movie. Make an Esther movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of great movies in there. I mean, like, like now I will say this. Maverick Top Gun, amazing. Who saw it? That was a weird conversation. Let's get back to the Bible. Okay. Um, so David slaying Goliath, what an amazing story. I think Esther should get more pub for what she slays in this story. Esther slays this thing called fear. And fear is just like a giant like Goliath. It will mock you. It will talk to you. But until you literally will grab the stones of faith and actually toss them at fear, fear will always be in the way of, why, of what you're called to do and what you're called to conquer. So in this story, the big solution for you and I is one of the things we're going to have to conquer is fear. The fear of the opinion of man, the fear of giving up things we think are the most valuable but really aren't the most valuable, the fear of giving up our worldly identity so we can actually gain our kingdom identity. Ooh, there's a lot of fear to be slayed, but I believe you can slay it. I believe I can slay it. So let's go to Esther 1. Esther 1 introduces us to the first character that's a big part of this. His name is Xerxes. Let me read you the, uh, the scripture. Ready? Esther 1 says this, these events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his entire empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and, and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days, a tremendous display of opulent wealth of his empire and pomp, splendor of his majesty. So basically he said, I'm going to go to war in a little bit. I want to have a big party, a massive 180-day 80 day party. Basically this, ain't no party like a Persian party because a Persian party don't stop, okay? Day, day 17, whew, we still party. Yep, that's what King Xerxes said. Okay, okay. Day 35, we're still doing it. Okay, okay, turn the music up. Okay, day 57, still having a good time. Okay, day 100, I mean, he loves to party. That you study this, everybody had a different gold goblet. It was so opulent that nobody had the same design goblet. And not only that, but the, the drinks were never supposed to be empty. Drink as much as you want. Can I, can I tell you really what's happened here? It is a Las Vegas bachelor party on steroids. For a hundred, and not a good one. I don't know if there's such a good one, but a holy, for my bachelor, we're going to Vegas and we're share Jesus. Hallelujah. Um, but if you weren't a believer... And you went to go party before your wedding day with some guys, you didn't know the Lord, and you went to Vegas and allowed Vegas to give you every sin that it had to offer. Well, that's what Xerxes is saying. I want this to be a party where there are no parameters. Drink as much as you want and do whatever you want. 
for 187 days. Frat party on steroids. This is Xerxes, a worldly man, a hedonistic man. Let's keep reading it. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress. So he, he goes 180 days. He's like, I just feel like I'm supposed to do one more party. So he does another seven-day party. 180 days. What do you want to do now, Xerxes? Seven more days of party. <laughs> seven more. Get the most important people down for this one, okay? So seven more party, okay? Let's go seven more days. It was held in the courtyard. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Sounds like a baby like, uh, reveal, like how like, beautiful it is, like white ribbons and everything. Uh, but here's what happens. Gold and silver uh, couches stood on a mosaic pavement of purified marble, mother of pearl, all kinds of costly stones, basically. Drinks were served in gold goblets, many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity by edict of the king. No limits were placed on the drinking. Talked about that. For the king instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. You keep reading this. King Xerxes literally in the middle of it goes, go get my wife, Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti responds to this. No, 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 no. I am the granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. I was raised to be treated like a real woman. She was a feminist before it was cool. All right, she was a woman ahead of her time. So she tells King Xerxes, yeah. And so what happens? He's a little upset. He's a little angry. And so he um, kind of lets it just aside. He's, of course, going to remove Queen Vashti to be queen. And uh, we'll pause there for a second. Before I move on from Xerxes and we go to Esther 2 and we find out how Queen Vashti gets removed and how Esther gets implemented, you need to know something about Xerxes. Xerxes is unbelievably kind at times. If you read the whole book of Esther, you'll see him reward people with just the greatest reward if they're kind to him. Mordecai does this great deed, saves his life, and so he, he gives Mordecai this unbelievable reward. Oh, King Xerxes is so rewarding. But then there's other stories about King Xerxes. He wanted to build a bridge from the Black Sea uh, to the Mediterranean. 300 engineers, 300 builders to build this bridge. And so they build the bridge, and in the middle of the end of the build, a great storm comes and demolishes this bridge. Xerxes is furious. And so he looks at his engineers, looks at his builders, and has them all beheaded for failing. And if that's not crazy enough for somebody who has a bad day and gets really angry, he tells his soldiers, I want you to lash the ocean 300 times. I want you to tell the ocean, how dare you disobey King Xerxes? So they lash the ocean 300 times. Oh, he's not done yet. He tells his other soldiers, I want you to heat up hot poker sticks. I want them fiery hot, and I want you to stab the ocean and let them know what real pain feels like. So he stabs the ocean with hot poker sticks for disobeying King Xerxes. Oh, he's not done yet. He takes shackles. And as his shoulders, soldiers throw shackles in the ocean and says, I am now shackling you, ocean. You will never disobey me again. This is King Xerxes. Can you imagine this type of person in charge of your life and your world? Can you imagine this type of authority? One day they'll reward you. One way they'll destroy you. Woo, that would be a crazy authority to live under. It's called the mob of America. The mob of America is unbelievably rewarding. And it is all ruthless if you mess up. And the reality is you can say President Biden is in charge. Yes, he is the president. We pray for him. We honor him. He's in charge of our political system. But what's in charge of people is not that you don't care if President Biden gets mad at you if you make a decision or post something on Instagram. 
He's not the one you're afraid of. He's not, you're not, oh, Biden loved my post. I'm happy today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Biden's mad at me. I'm so upset. No, here's the reality is, is that there is an authority in this world and the authority is not a man. It is a spirit. And it's mechanism and its method is a group of people to intimidate others that when you succeed, I will reward you like I rewarded Mordecai. But if you fail in my eyes, I will discipline and destroy you in front of everybody. That's a scary culture to live in. It's amazing how much we look at our social media platform. And our social media platform is unbelievably rewarding and unbelievably ruthless. And it just depends on the day. It's an echo chamber of echo chambers. It's literally just echo chamber. You, it even has algorithms to make sure that you see everything you want to see in your echo chamber. And if somebody says anything outside of your echo chamber, delete, unfriend, or destroy them. Don't tell me Xerxes is gone. That same spirit that was controlling Xerxes is controlling the mob of people who don't know the Lord yet today. I came to a Sunday on Memorial Day. It's your first time? Come back, please. Okay, here we go. All right. Uh, let's keep going. So that's what uh, um, Esther uh, 1 shows us. Esther 2 shows us this. Introduces us to Mordecai and Esther. But after Xerxes angered his society, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. So his personal attendant suggested, let us search for the empire to find a beautiful young virgin for the king. Let the king appoint his agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women to the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. The king's eunuchs in charge of the harem will see that they are all given beauty treatments. And after that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Ashti. This advice was appealing to the king. Oh, oh was it? Um, um, so he put the plan into effect. Stop. So you need, something you need to know is when we read the Bible, um, Esther's just chapter one to two, it's not like a day that passed. It was a few years that passed from chapter one to chapter two. Chapter one, big party. King Xerxes goes and fights a battle. It's the Battle of Thermopylae. It's a very famous battle. There's a movie called 300 made after it. So King Xerxes is actually going to fight King Leonidas and he loses the Battle of Thermopylae. He's very frustrated that the, the, um, the Greeks are actually not um, falling down to him. He's won every other battle. Uh, he outnumbers the Greeks at least 10 to one. But the reality is, is that the Spartan Greeks at this time, the saying was that one Greek soldier was worth 10 Persian soldiers because the Greeks knew how to train men up to actually be men and know how to fight. Uh, Xerxes thought the power was in numbers. The Greeks thought the power was in actually training up the people. And so, so Xerxes actually has tasted a little bit of defeat. He comes back and his um, council realizes, man, Queen Vashti denied him and he's tasted his first defeat that he has had as a king. We got it, you know, we got to brighten up his day. Here's what happened. Season one of The Bachelor was birthed. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, you thought it was 20 seasons ago on ABC? No, no, no. Literally, these counts said, let's play the game of The Bachelor. Xerxes is the most eligible bachelor. We'll have 25 million women, narrow him down to 400, and he'll hang out with 400 women, and at the end, one will get the final rose. This is the, literally, you think, you think that that's a uh, modern-day idea? No, this was back in the Bible. You think uh, ABC thought about it myself? I bet you somebody in ABC was reading the Bible one day and was like, that could be a TV show <laughs> called The Bachelor. All right. Who watches The Bachelor? Raise your hand. I saw people like, am I allowed to say that in church? May we be more bold about our faith than we are about The Bachelor, Lord. May we, may we be bold about our faith. I may have watched The Bachelor for a few seasons. Sean was my favorite Bachelor. Yep, 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 yep. Sean and Catherine. Catherine was from Seattle. Uh, and then I think the next season they had this 
uh, gallon was bachelor. Her name was Caitlin, and it ruined it for me. I never watched it again. Anyways, um, the Lord opened my eyes to how bad it was. Now, whatever. Um, so, um, but this is the modern day bachelor. So he is going to pick somebody to be his queen. Uh, and the reality is, is before he meets them, they are going to get a year's worth of beauty treatments, manis and petties for 365, 24-7, massages, your hair did, oh my goodness. I mean, like for a year before they meet the king. And so Esther is one of these 400. I want you to see how this happens. So in the month of April, during the 12th year, um, sorry, whoops, my computer skipped ahead. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in the early winter of the seventh year. My computer froze. I'm so sorry. There we go. At that time, there was a Jewish man, the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai. This is verse 5 in chapter 2, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shammai. His family had been among those with King Jehoiakim of Judah and had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had very beautiful and a lovely cousin, Hadasha, who was also called Esther. The word Esther means star, by the way. I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, when her father and her mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as her own daughter. I wish I could... I wish I had two hours to talk about so many things about God's providence in this. You you need to know something. God uses everything. Uh, King Xerxes is drunk, calls for Queen Vashti to come in, and she is embarrassed that he would do such a thing. She denies him, and because she denies him, she's no longer the queen, and it opens up a door for Esther. Esther is an orphan, and looking at being an orphan, you'd say this is the worst thing ever, but God uses it her that she's an orphan because Mordecai's high in the palace. Mordecai becomes her father. He's 15 years older. He's a cousin. God's using all these things of just little things that you would say, is God even working? When we see a Red Sea get split, we say, God, your hand's on this. But when King Xerxes drunk, we're like, God's not on this. No, he's on this. He will use all things for the glory of the kingdom. And so he's just interweaving all of these little chess pieces, if you will. Oh, I'll use that. Oh, I'll use that. I'll, I'll use that and I'll use that. And so Esther, uh, who's also called Esther, when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her family and raised her as his own daughter. Esther was taken to the king's Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown, he gave her the rose, on her head and declared her queen instead of Ashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor to, for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. Esther finds herself in an unlikely place. 25 million females in Persia, down to 400, and she becomes the one. What an unlikely place for her to find herself. 7.8 billion people on the planet, 300 million people, 320 million people in America, 10 billion people in the Bay Area. What an unlikely place we found ourselves. The percentages are similar. It's a fascinating picture just to go, man, you could have me born in any nation, any culture, any nationality, but you chose for me to be here, God. And so that's what Esther 2 establishes. Esther 3 introduces Haman. Esther 3 says this, sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadath, the Agagite, uh, over all the other peoples, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so, king, uh, for, for so the king had commanded, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Now, why does the Bible, out of all things, tell us who Haman's dad is and where Haman comes from? Well, a few weeks ago, we uh, taught on David about, about a month ago now, but uh, Saul's, one of his first missions he was given was to destroy the Amalekites. And if you were there that week, I unpacked the Amalekites were basically like uh, Nazis at that time. They were 
destroying and killing babies and families. They were on a mission just to destroy and kill life, and they would not change. And so God gives Saul a, um, a mission to get rid of basically the Amalekites at that moment and not to take anything, not to, not to plunder. He didn't want to create a wealthy nation through Israel through plundering. He wanted to create justice. He wanted Israel to be used to create justice, not just wealth. Can I, does that make sense? And so Saul doesn't finish the job. He leaves this king alive named King Agag. It's amazing that Saul's disobedience is tasted in the ripple effects in Esther 3. That King Agag, that should never have been alive, is literally alive. And so Samuel literally shows up and goes, what did I tell you? And some of the Agagites have now gotten away. And so Samuel tries to finish the job. If you read the Bible, literally Samuel chops King Agag into pieces. Haman knows this because he's the great-great-grandson of King Agag. He now hates the Israelites because of what Samuel had done because he loved what his people was doing. So Haman now has it out for the, uh, for the Jews. And so when he finds out that he wouldn't bow down, here's what happens. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it. Um, he was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So Mordecai finds out, uh, I mean, uh, Haman finds out Mordecai is a Jew, but he doesn't want to kill Mordecai now. He wants to kill everybody. He wants to wipe the Jews off the face of the planet. Israelites. It's interesting. You look at this rhythm in the Bible, the world will always call you to bow down to the things that it wants you to bow down to. I mean, this is, of course, just one instance that, hey, bow down to me, show reverence to me, show that I'm your ultimate authority, bow down, because really what bowing down means, it's not just the physical representation. What it was representing was, you are my authority. What you say is right, what you say is wrong. What you say where to go, that's where I go. And you'll see this in Matthew 4 when, when Satan is tempting Jesus. He says, I'll give you the whole world if you'll bow down to me. A.K.A. if you'll allow me to be your authority to say what is right and what is wrong. If you'll allow me to lead you, Jesus, I'll give you the world if you'll bow down to me. Jesus does not bow down. Mordecai will not bow down to this spirit. And so the reality is when you will not bow down to the authority of the world, get ready for the world to plot to hurt you. That's just the reality. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. We worship a savior that the world hated. And we expect the world to love us. Right. If you are trying to have the world love you, you're missing your mission. Right. <laughs> now, your mission is to love the world. Your mission is to be kind to the world, serve the world. Oh, be generous to the world, be gracious. But if you're trying to win the world's approval by bowing down to them, that's not how you're going to win the heart of the world. It's how you're going to lose your heart to the world. Right. And so this is that moment Mordecai has. He won't bow down. Uh, goes on to say, so in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast uh, uh, in Haman's presence, determined the best day of the month to take action. The day was selected March 7th, nearly uh, a year later. So much scripture, I apologize. I'm reading and I'm popcorning a lot, but I want to get through as much as I can today with you. Haman goes to King Xerxes, uh, and I'll read it to you, but he casts some lots on the day to meet uh, King Xerxes, and it's March 7th, and he comes to King Xerxes, and here's his plan that he promote, pro, uh, promo, uh, promotes to King Xerxes. There is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it's not the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they are, will be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators. That's a third of Persia's economy. That's a, lot of, that's a pretty good carrot to kings. I'll give you 10,000 uh, bags of silver. Uh, to be deposited in the royal treasury. So Haman sells him two things. 
Haman says, I'll give you money. So he sells greed. He tugs at the hard court of greed. And then he also says, these people are dangerous people. They don't listen to you. Oh, they create problems. Oh, they should know their history. So he uses fear and greed to control the king. Isn't it interesting that usually Satan's plot usually has the cocktail of fear and greed in it? How to control people and mobs is through fear and greed. So the king confirmed his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman. So I see movies promoted all the time. And Rachel and I went and saw Top Gun this week, and uh, it was awesome. Top Gun Maverick was amazing. Um, way better than the first one, if you ask me, but that's a different story. And I love the first one. Um, all, the, all the right blockbuster feels. Um, but we'll see movies previewed, you know, and um, advertised during this day. And I'll be like, man, we've gotten really dark as a nation. Who would think of that kind of movie? And so I remember seeing the movie Purge. And the movie Purge is this movie where one day you can do whatever you want, kill whoever you want for one day, and that's just, the, and I remember going, what a dark, dark idea for a movie. And then I'm reading Esther 3, and Haman's proposal is, we'll have one day in this year where we'll call it The Purge, and we'll kill every Israelite, baby, woman, and child. You'll get a third of their, uh, you'll get uh, 10,000 pounds of silver, and the people who are a problem, they won't be a problem anymore. The purge of the movie was even back then. Can I tell you something? Darkness has always been around. Darkness has always been around. And so the reality is, is the only time darkness gets defeated is when light decides to say, I'm about to shine again. And so let's see Esther 4 where light starts to shine again. Are you ready? So Esther loses her life to save millions. We're almost done. I got six minutes and 15 seconds. I can do it. You ready? All right. Uh, when uh, Mordecai learned about all he had done, uh, all, that all had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city, crying out loud with a bitter wail. So he's crying. Esther sees him. She's like, oh my gosh, my, 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 the guy who raised me, my, my dad basically, who raised me, he, there's something wrong with him. He's, he's so sad. Oh, she's a queen. So she deals with the queen way. She sends him a gift, brand new, nice clothes. Because that's how you fix problems. Just throw some money at it. And the reality is, is that's, how, that's the culture of being in the palace. So she throws a, a, a gift at him, but he refused it. He goes, I don't want your money. I want you. And the reality is, church, we can throw money at things and we give literally hundreds of thousands of dollars away because we believe in building houses for people who don't have houses. We believe in taking care of orphans. We believe in taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. We believe that. But we also believe that we need to give our life to things also. And so he comes back. When King Esther and Eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him and replaced the burlap. He refused it. Then Esther sent um, another attendant, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed as her attendant. She ordered him to go find out what was troubling him. We are going to take so much ground back if we just walk out to people and even ask them, why are they upset? She goes, just go find out why, why he's upset. So she, she asks why he's upset. Find out the why. It's interesting to me. Caring people, find out the why. Busy people walk past it and just go, oh, that's, that's too bad. But caring people stop and want to know why. And so Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact money Haman had promised. And so this goes on and um, Mordecai shares, hey, we're going to be all destroyed. I'm trying to think how much I could read of this. So Mordecai shares the predicament, the problem. We're all going to die, Esther. On this day, you're a Jewish person, you're, you're, you're an Israelite, I'm an Israelite, we're all going to die. And here's Esther's first response. All the king's officials and even the people of the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king is in inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. 
and the king has not been called, uh, called for me and uh, called me to come to him for 30 days. So she writes back, Mordecai, and she says, hey, you want me to go to King Xerxes because of what's happened, but he hasn't called me for 30 days, and he doesn't sleep alone. I haven't seen him for 30 days, and the process of the palace is you don't just go to the king. He's got to actually call for you with his gold scepter. It would be disrespectful. It would be a risk on my end. AKA, have you ever had these moments? God, I want you to use me. Use me, God. And God goes, I want you to do this. Use me for something else, God. God, I still want you to use me, but not for that. And God goes, I want to use you today. I'm busy today, but God, use me tomorrow. 4 to 5 p.m. 4 to 5, I'm good. 9 to 4, not so much. 5 to 10, not so But 4 to 5, I am yours to be used. Let's change the world. The reality is, is that this is the moment where Esther has to become the biggest loser. She has to risk more than anybody else, and it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. But God has put her in a position to be the one that needs to be the biggest loser at this moment. And the first thing that she loses, it is her schedule. She said, this isn't how we do it. You know what you're asking me? You're asking me, Mordecai, to risk everything. I could lose everything. And the reality is, is that she could lose everything. This isn't on the schedule of the king. This isn't convenient for me. This is the most inconvenient thing you could ask me to do. It's a risk. So she has to lose her schedule. Some of you going to have to lose your schedule this next season to gain everything. Second thing that she's going to lose is lose what culture tells you. This is too big of an ask. Is it, can I just tell you real quick? The thing God's going to ask you to do is going to be bigger than you. It's embarrassing if you're like, oh my gosh, it's just too big of an ask. That's what it should be. I don't see God going, hey, could you, um, you know, pray five minutes a day and that's it? Okay, you're doing such a good job. I'll never forget when I feel like God asked us to plant a church. It's too big for me. I was stressed out. I knew I couldn't do it on my own. I knew Rachel and I was going to destroy us. And if I could tell you the stories of even how breaking it was, the birth of Mission Church. But the reality is it was the greatest thing we could have ever done for our soul. We lost all our comfort of a paycheck. We lost our comfort of a routine. We lost people because people were upset that we were leaving. We lost so many things. But the reality is, is we gained so much more. If you're willing to lose some things, you're going to gain way more. And the last thing that she's going to risk is her life. You're asking me to actually risk my life, Mordecai. I could die. I could literally die. She goes, and not only that, she can lose her position. But she's willing to risk her position for her purpose of why she's alive. So here's what happens. I love what Mordecai tells her. So she tells her, hey, I don't think I, Mordecai, I know what you're asking, but I just can't. It's just not convenient. It's too big of an ask. And here's what Mordecai says. You're right. Too big of an ask. My bad. Didn't mean to inconvenience you, Esther. My bad. I did. What was I thinking? I don't want to inconvenience you. This is a big ask. I know it's outside your schedule. I apologize. I'll go find somebody else. That's not what Mordecai says. But that's what we do a lot with people. I don't want to inconvenience you. I don't want to push a button in your life. So I'm not going to tell you what you need to hear. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. And we need more Mordecais in the church telling people they love what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Because Mordecai, this moment, tells Esther not what she wants to hear, but what she needs to hear. And here's what he says. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you'll escape with, with all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you're made for queen for such a time as this. You need people to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Well, I'm your pastor. I'm going to tell you two things you need to hear today. Are you ready? 
Oh, here we go. Okay. First one. <laughs> Kidding. Here's what you need to hear. God has to be first in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Ty, you tell me that all the time. No, I know. We even have a thing called first night to remind you every month. You think we do first night? This is coming up this Wednesday, 7 p.m. Literally, we worship and we pray. That's all we do. You think we do first night because we think it's just another busy thing to do? We do first night, the first Wednesday of every month, to remind ourselves and to remind God we know why we're alive and who we're alive for. God, this Wednesday, I'm too busy this Wednesday. I'm too busy that next Wednesday. I'm too busy that day. No, I say, I guard my first Wednesday of every month because I give my first to God. Todd, what are you doing first Wednesday? I'm busy. I got tickets to the Warriors game. Let me pray about it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I would pray about it. He's not a legalistic God. I'm kidding. Um, the reality is, is that when you look at your life, why Esther is saying no, it's just because simply Esther's first. Esther's schedule is first. Esther's comfort is first. Esther's life is first. You'll never, ever change the world when you come first. You won't. You just won't. You only change your world. You'll never, ever, you, all the things that you want in your heart, you know, every single thing you want right now, just think of everything you want. I, I, really think about it real quick. Think about every, the desires in your heart, the, 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 the abundance you desire. It will never, ever be found by you putting yourself first. That is a lie from the, oh, and it's one of the greatest lies from the enemy. It's something this world is bought into and this culture is bought into. And so many people believe it still. You could preach till, I could preach till I'm red in the face and you'll still leave going, I know what you're saying, but I still think I'm supposed to be first. You will never have what your heart desires with that mindset. You need to hear this for one season. Maybe try 40 days. Have God be first in everything. The first thing you do in the morning, you pray. God, what do you want from me today? You get to pick first, not me. What do you want from my life, my talents, my children? What do you pick first, God? I don't pick first. What do you want from my week, God? You pick first, I don't pick first. Watch what happens to the desires of your soul. Second thing. Sorry. Yeah, I'm, hold on, I got a thing. Second thing. All right, here we go. Second thing that you need to hear from me. Simply this. Is people have to become a priority. People have to become a priority in your life. We're so busy for the reason why we're alive. The Great Commission. The reason why you were saved was to go help people and build people up. Yeah. Breath in your lungs. Why you have feet to walk around. Why you have the word of God in your soul and in your mind was so you would make disciples and build people up and people would become a priority. Not that you would become the priority. Literally, Mark 10, upside down kingdom, he says, everybody uses their position and their life to have everything serve them but not among you, my disciples. You will serve other people and you will use your power. You will use your life to wash feet. And literally, when you do this, you will become the greatest. You will change the world, not from your position, but becoming a servant and living with a servant purpose. When people become a priority in your life and you start pouring your life into people, watch what happens to your soul, your family, the richness that pours in. That's why the church is so important. The church is where people are the priority. God first. And then people. Right. And the church's mechanism is always reminding us, I'm all about God and I'm all about helping people. Yeah. Oh, those are the two things that you need to hear today. I don't have any more. Okay, here we go. I'll finish. <laughs> I'm a really good spinner. Okay, um, so anyways, um, uh, Esther, 
says, okay, I'm willing to lose everything. She goes in. I'm going to finish in three minutes. Um, I'm so sorry. It's a long message. Um, so um, you enjoying the message? Yeah. If you are bored and you need to leave, you are now dismissed. That'd be so weird. It would have been weirder if like half of you left. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, so let me conclude with this. I'm going to go, I'm going to fast forward to Esther 7. So that's Esther 4. Esther 5 and 6. Esther decides I'm going to go for it. Esther 5, she comes to King Xerxes and goes, can I have a party with you, me, and Haman? And King Xerxes goes, you got it. So she, the risk of her coming in is a huge risk. Haman, during that time, it's like a chess game, if you will. He's just moving pieces around. He, he has these poles, um, and Persians would impale people. That's one of the ways they would kill. They also invite, invented crucifixion, by the way. The Persians did. And so he has these poles erected uh, to kill Mordecai with. So these poles are erected, and he gets the green light to ki- have Mordecai killed, all the Jewish people killed. And so at Esther 7, chapter 7, whew, everything in this book right now looks like God's people are done, and, and Mordecai's dying, and the Jewish people, the people of God are heading for destruction. That's what it looks like in chapter seven. If, if I could just use a, 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 a chess game illustration with you, it's almost like if Satan was playing chess against God and he takes his king, King Xerxes, and goes, check, I'm gonna kill all your people. I got Xerxes, you're done, check. He's my puppet. And Satan feeling like he's got the win because who in the world would risk their life to save God's people? And God across from Satan goes, I have a queen, and her name is Esther. And he moves Esther and says, checkmate. I defeat your Haman, and I defeat your Xerxes. And what happens is, is Esther comes in, and she risks it all, and she goes, King Xerxes, if I were just going to be a slave forever, I would, not be, uh, I would stay quiet. But, but Haman right here wants to kill all my people and kill me. Will you fix this? How do we fix this? Will you help my people? Will you, help my, will, will you, will you please help my people? And of course, he has uh, Haman on the, the same poles that were going to kill Mordecai are now actually it's killing Haman. And then he has the Jewish people allowed to, to, to defend themselves and they defend themselves. And they, there's now a celebration we celebrate, uh, the Jewish people celebrate every year because of it. And I just, I just love that picture of how the enemy thought he had won and God used Esther to say checkmate back to the enemy. And so then I look at our life today, and I look at the Bay Area. Kind of the worship team come up. I totally forgot. Oh, it's too late. I'm just going to dismiss. Never mind. Um, <laughs> would have sounded way better with some keys, though. I'll tell you that much. Um, there's something about just the ministry. You know, they bring the musicians. There's something spiritual about it. Um, we're in the Bay Area, and by all accounts, it looks like the enemy's won. 4% of the Bay Area is Bible-believing Christians, the lowest amount in all of the U.S., when I talk to other people, when I tell them where I'm from, they know that also. What the enemy's done in the Bay Area, and forgive me, but I'm going to use a very blatant statement what's happened here. The enemy's either drove out the Christians or bought out the Christians. Wow. Drove them out or bought them out. It's too dark. Get out of here. Go somewhere else. Don't stay here. It's too dark. This is my land. And so some people have left just because it's too dark. Now, if God's called you to move somewhere, I'm not saying you're not allowed to move somewhere. But I don't believe that Christians are supposed to flee from darkness. I believe we're supposed to transform darkness into light. And so I, that, that's just my, that's just at least my, that's what I see in the Bible at least, is what I see. But a lot have, have been driven out because of the culture of the Bay Area. Second part, they've been bought out. It's the most busy area everywhere. I met somebody a few weeks ago. They were even looking for a job. They didn't have a job. Hey, how you doing? Just busy. Like, you don't even have a job. 
but I feel like it's the first thing we say in the Bay Area. It's like, how are you doing? First, busy, you know? Like Rachel and I, we're, we're having a great life. We pastor your church, but we don't have kids. And so I tell people like, oh yeah, we're pretty busy. But then I meet somebody who has four kids. I'm like, I'm not busy yet. Until I have kids, I'm not allowed to use the word busy. Because people have kids and do what I do. How in the world do they do it? But the reality is the enemy has not made a lot of Christians bad in, the air, in this area. He's just made them busy. He's bought them out. And there's a lot of Christians in this house. You haven't been bought out yet. And you're stewarding well. I'm not saying all of us have been bought out. But I'm saying for us to literally take back the Bay Area. The enemy probably has says, I got the Bay Area. Least church region. I own it. Check. It's mine. And God is looking for a church to say, I'm willing to risk everything. I'm willing to give my whole life, my schedule, everything, God. And for God to say, I've got this church named Mission Church. Checkmate. Barrier is mine again. Do you believe in Revival Mission Church? Will you bow your heads with me? I don't know if it's your first time or second time in church. But if you never said yes to Jesus, yes to heaven, no to hell, yes to blessing, no to cursing, if you want to say yes to salvation today, very simple question. All you have to do is raise your hand and catch my eye. The Bible shows that if you confess your mouth, believe your heart, you'll be saved. So on the count of three, if you want to say yes to salvation today, will you raise your hand and catch my eye? One, two, three, raise it up and raise it high. I see you. It's a great decision. Oh, God, we love you. God, we love you. Will you guys stand up? We're going to pray. It is weird not having keys. Hold on. I'll do it. 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 Repeat after me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All I know is three blind mice, three blind mice. Be a weird uh, prayer. All right, let's pray. Jesus, Jesus. come into my life. life. Today, Today. I confess confess. I'm a sinner sinner. in need of a Savior. savior. Today, Today. I confess confess. you are my Lord. Lord. I say goodbye to my past and hello to my promises. I say goodbye to cursing and hello to blessing. So that's the salvation prayer. So people got to say in service. Now here's the second prayer we're going to say. This is for the, us to say checkmate. All I want you to say is, God, God this, week, this week, you are first. You are first. Use me. Yes. And everybody said, Amen. let's go change the world, Mission Church. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.